Hello everyone, just a quick note before we start this episode. Uh, it was recorded as one episode, but it's been split into a two-parter. Now this is partly because we're talking about the god of wine Dionysus, who also happens to be the god of theatre, so obviously I rambled on for too much about that. Uh, the other reason is that the uh, pubs have been reopening with the easing of lockdown. And so we might have got a little bit distracted and uh, not recorded enough ahead of time. So it just gives us a little bit more leeway, to be honest. Anyway, uh, it also means you don't have to listen to an episode for an hour and a half all in one sitting. So hopefully you can take it a little bit easier on the drink-along experience. Uh, see you at the other end of this episode. Enjoy! Oh, show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. Had a little drink about an hour ago And it's gone right to my head Wherever I may roam On land or sea or foam You can always hear me sing this song Show me the way to go Hi, this is Thinking Drinking, a podcast about drinks, trivia and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim and I'm joined in the virtual pub by my drinking buddy, Ileri. What are you drinking and thinking about today? Hello, hello, hello. Yeah. Um, I'm drinking a very fancy sounding wine. It is called Mavrodaphne of Patra. Oh, I see. Which is a Greek wine. Mavrodaphne is the type of grape, I do believe. Um, no guesses mm. for thinking I'm thinking of Greek wine. Very nice indeed. I am I am drinking wine. I've got some wine. It is not Greek. However, I have accompanied it with an aperitif, which is... Um, it's a mastic liqueur. Ooh. You know mastic, the uh, mastic trees, you take the sap from them and it turns hard into gum and people used to chew it like, well, like we have chewing gum, so they would use it as breath fresheners and to aid digestion uh, and that sort of stuff. So it's, um, it comes from the island of Chios, which is where almost all the mastic is produced. It's sometimes known as Tears of Chios because of the way the sap drips from the, the trees. And in fact, the first mention of them being tears was by our old friend Hippocrates. Ah, what a guy. Because it has been used um, in Greek antiquity for about two and a half thousand years. And uh, so he would obviously recommend it medicinally, but uh, Roman emperors even used it, along with honey and pepper and egg in their spiced wine, which is called Conditum Paradoxum. Um, so yes, this one is from Kios. It's called Enosis. Enosis in Greek means union. And it tastes, I mean, it, it tastes kind of sappy. It tastes a bit like pine or cedar or something, and it's very sweet. So it's sort of yeah. sweet, refreshing, piney drink. Piney very drink. Nice. Sounds good. Mm. Funny enough, um, piney yeah. drinks, I'm going to be talking about those later. Seems to be a common theme in the old greek wine industry absolutely yeah they uh, they use their trees wisely so i um for for my part for my half of this i'm going to talk about dionysus slash bacchus because i think <laughs> it's about time we paid homage to the most well-known god of drinking i i believe well yeah you were obviously going to go into the whole greek mythology and i was just going to talk about booze 
Who are we kidding? <laughs> we know our place. <laughs> <laughs> so on brand. Do you want to kick off then? Sure. I just want to talk about drinking. <laughs> uh, namely how to drink like a Greek. Um, there are many ways to drink like a Greek. I'm sure we've all done the odd ouzo of regret on holiday. But I'm going to talk about wine and wine only. Um, so wine, it was very common, relatively cheap. It was a, an everyday drink in both the classical Greek and Roman cultures. Um, it was drunk on its own and with meals. Um, but the most interesting thing I found is that they actually dilute their wine heavily. Um, they diluted it with water, one part wine to three parts water. <laughs> so wine squash, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> wine squash. I think we all could have uh, done with that as children to warm us up to the experience. <laughs> Um, and while it's, it's interesting because while they were kind of diluting their wine, uh, it was quite scandalous that the Macedonians were drinking theirs neat. Mm. Um, but the reason they diluted it was purely to prevent excessive alcoholism. It wasn't to kind of create more or, you know, more profit, anything like that. It was just excessive alcoholism, um, which was, um, at least by the elite, uh, it was considered a trait of barbarian foreign cultures. And um, it was also parodied quite a lot in Greek plays. Um, and as I'm sure you'll probably mention in your bits, uh, drunkenness crops up quite a lot in Greek mythology as an explanation for really bad behaviour. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they just didn't want to get drunk, so they'd dilute it. Um, so as I mentioned, it was common and cheap, so a lot of people would drink it in the culture. But there was also fine wine, and fine wine was enjoyed by the elite um, at a symposium, which is a very big fancy banquet with lots of wine, lots of dancing and music, uh, where intellectuals, politicians and philosophers would gather. Um, they'd usually sit on quite fancy um, reclined sofas, and they'd have conversations and give eloquent speeches um but every guest there was expected to consume the exact same amount of wine which would be poured by either slaves or pastormen the partakers uh, and the reason for that again being moderation it played a real central role in their culture um moderation meaning knowing your limits acting accordingly avoiding excess and pursuing a balance in life so it's very frowned upon to be pissed up in a symposium Um, however the other one interesting fact that I did find about um, how wine was viewed in Greek culture was it was often healthier than what could have been quite unreliable sources of water because there was a lot of dirty water around the place so wine was often prescribed as a medicine by ancient doctors but again it was to be taken in moderation because they very very quickly learned uh, the dangers of excessive drinking. Um, they listed them as insomnia, memory loss, a distended stomach, character changes, and early death. I mean, they're not wrong. <laughs> they aren't. They put it quite eloquently. They said, wine is a gift from the gods. It's not to be overindulged in, or one would end up meeting them earlier than you hope. Um, and then I quickly looked at the kind of modern view of alcohol in Greece as well. Um, and they're quite proud that in Mediterranean culture 
there's still a very civilized role of alcohol there and it's built mm. on those aspects of the Greek, Greek lifestyle. Um, there are three key things, joy, a sense of public life and family life. So with regards to joy, you drink in joy. They drink not to escape, but to just chime their glasses together and engage more fully in the moment with one another. Even the occasional excess is usually a product of happy exuberance. Drunken fighting and re regrettable behaviour are virtually non-existent. Um, also, it's quite famous that in the Greek language, there's no specific word for a hangover. Mm. Which is quite smug, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And just with regards to the sense of public life, it's not uncommon to just be able to nice buy a nice cold bottle of wine from one of the kiosks in Greece and they'll give you some plastic cups and you can just sit by the waterfront. A lot of university students do that and they get their guitars out and just enjoy a glass of wine again. No no excessive drinking, it's just enjoying the evening in each other's company, not to end up in a mess. <laughs> <laughs> And the last one, family life. Um, young people do try a little bit of wine for the first time on festive occasions. Um, the introduction to that is very gentle, very civilised. Um, a tipsy teenager is very rare sight in Greece. You're not going to see people down the park throwing up, getting dangerously drunk. <laughs> They're all just very sensible and snug about it. <laughs> they must think... hate us Brits over there. I was going to say, I can't think what cultures you've got in mind that would do something <laughs> like that. <laughs> I, I'm going to really think about it because I've been on holiday to Cyprus and that's about it. I've not spent any time in kind of Greek islands. They've always been on my list. Um, and since doing this research for this podcast, it's made me realise that I don't want to be that drunk British girl in Greece. <laughs> <laughs> no, please don't. <laughs> Probably will, but at least I'm aware of it. <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> well, maybe maybe we can offer some languages and stories which uh, might support your behaviour. At least you can put it in a historical context and talk your way out of it. I'm sure you'll remember every detail as well at that time. God, yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, and I'm just going to end my little section there on a Greek toast of Yamas. Ah, Yamas. Yamas. Cheersing. We're cheersing each other visually, <laughs> folks. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, chin chin. Um, uh, mentioning about the symposium, it was something that I thought, oh, we could go into more detail, but actually I think we should do it on another occasion because there's so much to talk about. The famous mm -hmm. symposium, the symposium written by Plato, which uh, deals with lots of hilarious antics from uh, yeah. various philosophers. There and... was, yeah, I researched a lot and they sound like a hoot. Yes. Yeah, they are. We we've, we kind of learn a lot about the characters of the philosophers through the, the writings on the symposia. But I do like that, the reclining thing. I've seen quite mm. a few where they're lying on their stomachs, they lie forward and there's a table in the middle with all the food and drink on, but you have like a little shelf in front of you where you're lying on your front for your own, for your own bits. And everyone's just kind of resting on their elbows talking to each other it's all very cash it's it's kind of <laughs> hilarious because you look at it and you just think this looks so strange um I, I did write down the name of the fancy reclined sofas but my greek pronunciation is shocking uh, <laughs> oh well you, then you're in for a treat because uh, i've got a few coming up i think it's relatively safe to try it's triclinia triclinia 
Sounds good to me. <laughs> there are lots of Greek mentions in mine, but I've had to write them out phonetically on my hand. So when I do have to say them. <laughs> yeah, I haven't done that. So let's see how we go. Um, <laughs> right. Shall I, shall I uh, segue into a bit of godliness? Yes, please. All right. So Dionysus is mostly known as the Greek god of wine, theatre and ritual frenzy known as Bacchaea. And for this reason, in ancient Rome, he's also known as Bacchus. So you you find in Greco-Roman culture, it crosses over a lot. You know, the Romans had sort of certain traditions and stories which uh, they would either translate from the Greek more into their own culture or some existing ones which they would sort of work backwards and put on Greek. So there's a lot of similar you know, deities and stories between the two, if you like. So that's why this is Dionysus and Bacchus. It's sort of the same person. Um, but to stop at that description of Dionysus, Greek, wine, theatre, ritual frenzy would be a bit of an oversimplification of his origins and his legacy. So I'm going to offer a few more stories. But what we have to know is that these stories have been retold um, and joined up with existing local stories and gods so many times that you can't really find a true origin. It's not known. There isn't any single storyline. I would say that's true of all deities in all cultures, but I find it's particularly true of Dionysus, as, as we might see. So even up until the 19th century, classical scholars thought that Dionysus was a late addition to the Greek pantheon of gods. Even now, you will read some sort of encyclopedias or textbooks that say he was the last god entered into the Greek pantheon, um, you know, alongside Zeus and Hera and the rest of the Greek gods. And partly I think that's because his stories are all about being on Earth. They're about traveling around. He arrives as an outsider, as a foreigner, um, and he's very concerned with uh, the matters of humans. He's usually freeing, most of the time he's freeing humans from an overbearing civilization with this wine-induced inspiration and sexuality and subversion. Um, so that was one of the reasons why they thought he wasn't one of the older gods. But more recently than that, we have discovered references to Dionysiac worship in Crete, which means that the ancient Minoans were there with uh, that god way before the Greeks, as far back as the 15th century BCE. So that's a really long time before the Greek pantheon comes into its own. Um, and he was, set, he was set at that time to introduce oxen-pulled agriculture to humans, and was therefore sometimes depicted as being horned. Um, and, you know, when you get to the Minoans, to the Mycenaean Greeks, you are always going to encounter uh, minotaur, bull culture, because that was sort of central to a lot of their imagery and their deities. Uh, versions of that story and character are also comparable to ones I found in ancient Egypt and India. So it seems more likely that he arrived into the Greek pantheon at the same time as Zeus. And in fact, his name possibly has its origins in Zeus, and it means little Zeus or son of Zeus um, in some of the Proto-Indo-European languages. So in this period, it's kind of speculated as to whether this is, for want of a better phrase, traditional parentage in as far as gods have traditional parentage, or as in he's like a separate being, or whether he's like another aspect of Zeus 
another sort of incarnation. But he's also variously tied in that way to Hades and Apollo and Persephone and Demeter and Semele and seems to take on uh, lots of different aspects and origin stories. And that has led to him being referred to as the twice or sometimes thrice born god. And that puts him in the tradition of some of the other reborn and resurrected deities like Christian Jesus, for example. And Dionysus was also known as the one who suffers because he comes to earth and he suffers kind of uh, death and tortures and other things many times over. The Romans also sometimes associate him as well as Bacchus with Liber. And Liber was a son of Ceres, who was a harvest deity, a harvest goddess. And her son Liber represented freedom, liberty. Um, and although it, it varies at the time between Roman historical writers as to whether he was the same as Bacchus and Dionysus or a distinct being, um, we also hear him called Eleutherius, which means the liberator. And Eleutherius was associated with wine, music, ecstatic dance uh, that freed his followers from self-conscious fear and care and subverted oppressive restraints of powerful people. So you can see why they're all associated as being the same person. They basically do the same thing. Dionysus is often seen carrying a thyrsus, which is a staff, sometimes a big stick, sometimes fennel. And it was wound with ivy and dripping with honey. And it was used both as a sort of magic wand for, for good things, but also as a weapon to destroy those who opposed his cult and the freedoms that they represented. The religion that was associated purely with, well, not just purely with Dionysus, but closely with Dionysus as the key figure as opposed to the entire pantheon, uh, it's called Orphism because his stories are told by Orpheus. And that spread throughout Greece and Eastern Europe as well. It's probably the widest spread of the Greek cults, we find, in fact. So a lot of people are readily adopting these stories. The central focus of Orphism is the suffering and death of Dionysus at the hands of the Titans, who were one of these sort of primitive divine beings that were always at, at war with Zeus and, and um, you know, those gods. So according to the myth, the infant Dionysus is killed and torn apart and consumed by the Titans. And then in retribution, Zeus strikes the Titans with a thunderbolt, turning them to ash. And from these ashes, and sometimes it's a great flood as well, actually. There's always a great flood myth in every culture. Um, humanity is born from those ashes. And in the Orphic belief, it's that this describes humanity as having a dual nature. So their body comes from the Titans and their divine spark or their soul comes from Dionysus. So the sort of the work of humans, if you like, is to try and get salvation from being a Titan in their material existence um, and undergo initiation into Dionysian mysteries through um, a purification ritual called Telete. And the idea is that they relive the suffering and the death of the gods. So the Orphics believed that after death, they would spend eternity with Orpheus and the other heroes and all this sort of stuff in an afterlife. People who weren't following that, who were uninitiated, would just be reincarnated indefinitely. Um, and in order to try and maintain their purity uh, following initiation, they would live a pretty ascetic life. So, you know, they, they really didn't indulge in many pleasures, contrary to what we might think. They would be vegetarian. The only wine they would take would be in ritual, like kind of like you have wine in Christian mass. 
rather than any sort of big, as we might think, Bacchic celebrations. So even from, from that, from Orphism up to that point and from ancient representations, you can probably already see some of those things echoing in other religions. I think particularly, you know, in India with things like, um, you know, not drinking and abstaining and reincarnation and, you know, trying to live a sort of pure life so you can get into heaven. I sort of see those parallels. But then also with things like drinking wine and being resurrected and reborn in Christianity. So I think it's quite interesting to see how widespread these influences become. Um, obviously, the way he's revered and represented changes over time, and that includes the attitude to wine as well. Uh, in later stories, one version has it that Dionysus is born between Zeus and Persephone and named as Zeus's successor, which enrages Hera, you know, Zeus's wife. Hera is always angry in the Greek stories. <laughs> she's always she's usually justified in being angry at Zeus, but here we go. Um, anyway, so it's Hera who actually sets the Titans onto uh, Dionysus and when they tear him apart. One version then has that Apollo gathers Dionysus's remains and buries them in his land. And that gives rise to a lot of the stories that are more to do with harvest rituals. And then in another version, it's Athena who saves the heart of Dionysus. Zeus uses that to impregnate a human, Semele, with it. And again, Hera is angry because Semele is bearing uh, Zeus's child, Dionysus. So she tricks Semele into asking Zeus to appear before her in his divine form. What she says is, if he really loves you, he'll appear to you in his true form. Of course, when Zeus does that, she is um, it's struck by lightning and turned to ash. But the, the fetus Dionysus survives and Zeus implants it in his own thigh to bring it to gestation. And Dionysus is reborn from the thigh Who of Zeus. Who Zeus is so batshit? <laughs> oh, I mean, it's not the half of it. The stories, that's why I love them. Wait, they should do like a Jeremy Kyle, but with the Greek gods. <laughs> oh, I've, I've done many a comedy sketch in that vein before. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, so that's his, his, that's some of his birth origins. There are many, but you can see why they call him twice born, thrice born, all this sort of stuff. He has many sort of birth origins. Uh, regarding, regarding the wine association, there are more stories in that as well, but here are a couple. Um, most notable is probably the story of a, a youth called Ampelus, who, um, Dionysus loved. And he has a fatal accident that's foreseen by Dionysus. And um, Ampelus is killed while he's out riding a bull. Bull mythology again. And the bull is maddened by the sting of a gadfly who has been sent by the goddess of folly known as Arte. But the fates grant Ampelus a second life as a vine from which Dionysus produces the first wine. Uh, a similar version to that is from Ovid who is always explaining the origins of things to us. I love him. Um, he <laughs> talks about the constellation Vindemeter in the sky, which is Vindemeter means the grape gatherer. And he writes, "'Tis said that the unshorn Ampelus, son of a nymph and a satyr." Nymphs and satyrs are like um, uh, nature spirits and sort of demigods. Satyrs will come back. They're always very sexual. Um, <laughs> so he's the son of a nymph and a satyr and was loved by Bacchus on the Ismarian hills. Upon him the god bestowed a vine that trailed from an elm's leafy boughs, and still the vine takes from the boy its name. While he rashly culled the gaudy grapes upon a branch, he tumbled down. Liber bore the lost youth to the stars. 
So there, even there, you can see he's been called Liber and Bacchus because it's a Roman writing about it. Um, another set of stories is an alternative that don't involve Ampelus. Say that when Dionysus grew up, he discovered the culture of the vine and the mode of extracting its precious juice, and he was the first to do so. But Hera, angry again, struck him with madness for drinking the wine and drove him forth a wanderer through various parts of the earth. So he goes into Phrygia. Phrygia is sort of now eastern Turkey. And their local goddess, Sibele, who would be known to the Greeks as Rhea, cures him of this drunken madness, as it, as it were, and teaches religious rites so that he can then set out on a progress throughout the rest of Asia, teaching the people how to cultivate the vine. And the most famous part of those wanderings, um, it comes through in legend with Alexander the Great, who says that on his conquest, on his military conquests, he came to a city called Nyssa near the Indus River, so in India. And the locals said that their city was founded by Dionysus um, in the distant past and that their city was dedicated to the god Dionysus. So Dionysus' travels kind of take on these echoes of military conquests. Um, according to one of the uh, historians, Diodorus Siculus, he actually went and conquered the whole world except for Britain and Ethiopia. Why not those two? I don't know. I can only assume that it's because Ethiopia had coffee and Britain was um, just too drunk and angry. Uh, <laughs> Uh, wine, as well as the vines and grapes that produce it, um, are seen then not only as a gift of the gods, but they are symbolic of his incarnation on earth as well. So he's very closely related with um, lots of harvests and nature rituals. However, as you sort of pointed out, rather than being a god of drunkenness, has, as he's been stereotyped in a post-classical era, the religion of Dionysus centres mostly on the correct consumption of wine which eases suffering and brings joy, as well as inspiring divine madness. Now, divine madness is not the same as drunkenness. They had many, many different ter um, terms for sort of madness which had been inspired by gods, but um, so it doesn't mean the same as drunkenness. Uh, performance art and drama are also central to the religion and the rituals in Dionysus. The festivals to him are all about performance, um, and they are what has been seen as the driving force behind the development of theatre. So the, uh, you know, as we would think of Greek theatre famously. Greek theatre, by the way, is much more akin to opera as we would know it now, um, rather than if you were thinking of like theatre being like what you might see at the Globe with the Renaissance theatre there. When opera was going through its Renaissance, it was actually trying to recreate Greek drama. So that's why they're quite similar. Um... So, celebrations. The, I'll talk about the rural Dionysia first. Uh, the Lesser Dionysia is one of the oldest festivals that are dedicated to Dionysus. It begins in Attica. Attica is a region of Greece that um, includes Athens. And it was mostly, um, you know, centred on the cultivation of vines. It was that, that kind of harvest um, celebration. It was held during the month of Poseidon, which is the winter month. So it was actually around the winter solstice, or essentially Christmas. Um, it centred on a procession during which participants carried uh, phalluses. Yes, I'm there. <laughs> it's a big hen party. <laughs> I knew I had to pause at this point because I was like, she's going to pack up. 
<laughs> so they they walk around with wangs and long loaves of bread and uh, jars of wine and the girls carry baskets. So there's absolutely no symbolism in any of that. Um, <laughs> and then the procession is followed by a series of dramatic performances and little drama competitions. Like, the city why, version. Why are the wangs there? Sorry, I need to know. Why are they carrying well, wangs? Well, so there's, there's a couple of things. One one is that he um, is a god of sexual liberation anyway. Okay. Um, you know, in, in his in his celebrations often there is sexual congress um the the wangs are even more pronounced um in the city versions the big competitions and the story there i'll talk about the city ones later but the story why kind of there's even more of a big deal made of the fallacies is supposedly because athens initially rejected the idea of celebrating or worshiping dionysus in any form they were like no we don't want to do that and that Dionysus, in revenge, struck them all down with the disease of the penis. <laughs> what a lad. <laughs> yep. And it was only when they agreed to put on drama festivals that he cured them. And so to commemorate that, they walk around with massive phalluses for the procession to remind them. I feel them. like Dionysus is your spirit animal, right? <laughs> Look, there's a reason why he's always been my favourite god. <laughs> he's got all the good stuff. <laughs> Mm. okay so i will talk more about the city one a bit later um before i go down that path though more into the drama there was another well-known festival as well called anthestria which was three days of honoring the dead because he you know resurrected and because he lives sort of on the edge he's also seen as sort of a conduit god between the living and the dead uh, so they honor it with lots of wine drinking obviously the first day, the wine vats are opened and mixed. So like you say, you always mix water into the wine. Um, that's the day when the dead will rise. The second day is um, solemn. That's in honor of Dionysus. And people will go to the temple and perform rituals. A lot of them are uh, sort of marriage-based rituals. And then the third day would be a celebration uh, when they've kind of finished drinking the wine. And that's when the dead are commanded to, to go back and they are banished. Uh, in Rome... Uh, the festivities were wrapped into Liberalia, after Liber, but most notably was the Bacchanalia. So the Bacchic rituals were said to have included practices such as pulling live animals apart and eating them raw. Unfortunately, this is, yeah, this is the thing that I'm not so keen on with Dionysus. You will find quite a lot of tearing things apart living, which is partly to do with his own birth stories because he was torn apart you know as being born by the titans but in fact even in his mortal family through Samili, everyone seems to get torn apart alive so there's something going on there um so yeah it's, it's not only like a reenactment of his infant death and rebirth um but it's also seen by the practitioners of a way of letting the god enter their their bodies so they can become one with bacchus there's an account by the historian livy which is a bit suspect, but um, I'll, I'll talk about it anyway, because he, he talks about the Bacchic mysteries being a novelty in Rome. And originally they're restricted to women and they were only held three times a year. And he says, then they were corrupted by an Etruscan Greek version. And thereafter they were drunken, disinhibited men and women of all ages and social classes, cavorting in a sexual free for all five times a month. Um, 
<laughs> Livy relates those um, outrages against Rome's civil and religious laws and traditional morality. He says it's subversive and counterculture. Um, he was probably drawing quite heavily on the satyr plays of the Roman dramatists who were satirizing Greek originals. A satyr play is essentially it's a comedy but written by tragedy writers which will make a bit more sense later on, possibly. Um, but they were they were basically meant to tackle serious subjects, but with lots of knob and fart jokes in them. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, scholars look at his account, and they're a bit sceptical as to how true that was. There, there is certainly... Because certainly in the Greek culture, they were very homosocial, which meant that if you had ritual celebrations they would have been women only or they would have been men only there wasn't a lot of mixing so what it sounds like is that actually there probably were some Bacchic celebrations going on in Rome but it was more of an excuse to have an orgy because that's what Rome was like but Livy's sort of blaming the Greeks for some reason so I don't know um but that said there was a um, a senatorial edict from Rome that went throughout um uh, Roman allies Italy that banned Bacchic cult organizations and said that each meeting must seek prior senatorial approval through the praetor, it's like a government official um, no more than three women and two men were allowed any one meeting I mean it's still five, that's still fun um, and those that's, who defied that just edict just run away the death from penalty. current restrictions sorry <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is, it is but um, yeah, it got to the point in Rome where they were really suspicious of it and um, they actually started executing people who were um, too into the Bacchanal. So um, I'm going to return to the drama to elaborate on the dangers of this evolving view of Dionysus worship um, about it being wine frenzied as opposed to sensible drinking um, and following on from the stories of Dionysus being a traveller because a lot of these stories led to people think of him as an actual historical person and not a deity at all. And that's best represented through Euripides' play, The Bacchae. But I think for now, because I've gone for a bit, uh, let's take a break. And before I get onto The Bacchae and all those sorts of things, do you want to tell me some more about some actual drink? Yeah. But it's also making me want to go and research more stuff because um, the word Bacchanal comes up a lot in Caribbean culture as well. And I want to find out why, why they use it, how has it got over there. Um, mm. It's used a lot around... Um, around their carnivals and stuff like that. So every August in Barbados is Emancipation Month um, and they have a huge crop over carnival there. And um, lots of different artists will write songs specifically for the carnival. And a lot of them will reference Bacchanal. So I want to yeah. read into that. Well, why. you know, Bacchanal has, has become a synonym for any kind of big celebration, uh, mm. really. I think... I think since it was um, reclaimed by people wanting to reject traditional religion and mm -hmm. they sort of went back with neo-paganism um, and said, well, you know, let's let's just embrace the Bacchanal without it being specifically about Bacchus or Dionysus. It's just it's become something of a metonym, I suppose. Um, but there may be a reason why it's specifically used more in that culture. I don't know. I'm really glad that you covered uh, Dionysus and Bacchus because I, ha I I would have been able to give you two things on those, <laughs> both food based. 
So Dionysus was my favourite kebab shop in London. It was <laughs> on Tottenham Court Road. Um, it's gone now. It's where the Crossrail is. Um, but it was great because it seemed to be open 24 hours. Didn't matter what time of night it was, what time you were getting at the club, you'd go to Dionysus and you'd get your food. Did you did you tear <laughs> it apart into pieces in honour of the gods? Have. If I wasn't that... Uh, <laughs> I actually remember being very drunk and telling them, Dionysus sounds like dinosaur. Can you draw me a dinosaur, please? Because they used to um, wear like little paper white hats when they were serving for hygiene reasons. And I insisted that they drew a dinosaur on a hat and let me sit there while I ate my chips. <sighs> Yet more cultural sensitivity from you there. Yeah, I mean, now I know about the whole excessive drinking stuff. They hated me, clearly. <laughs> um and the other one is the you'll know this one actually uh you'll know as soon as i say vivat bacchus <laughs> what i'm gonna talk about <laughs> we went there once on a work lunch and they had a cheese room oh yes <laughs> uh which is exactly how you imagine it just a massive chilled room full of all of the cheese you can think of and I just went in there and lost my shit and just started like putting cheeses on my shoulders like I was some crazy woman and the guy (laughs) hated me in there as well (laughs) (laughs) I've seen a pattern to these stories (laughs) Uh, so yeah you've covered the good stuff the important stuff (laughs) I'm going to talk about booze again Um, (laughs) so I looked into a lot of different Greek wines and there was one that kept coming up and that was a uh, Retsina wine. Mm. Um, that is a resonated wine. Uh, so it's produced with the addition of natural resin from Aleppo pine. So as I mentioned earlier, pine and kind of those kind of flavours are pre- quite prevalent in uh, Greek wines. But this is the most famous one for it, Retsina wine. Uh, so the resin from the pine trees um, it's added during the fermentation of the wine uh, it's usually white wine sometimes they do it with rosé but it's more common to be white wine um, so they just leave it kind of ha- it leaves this aroma in the wine and then they remove the resin they don't leave it in there it's just added then um, so the reasons why um, it's kind of an old Greek tradition it's considered to be about 2000 years old Um, And it's because the resin was used to seal the mouth of the ceramic vessels that were used to store or transport the wine. So they'd seal the mouth using the resin and they'd also coat the interior as well for insulation and to stop the wine from coming into contact with oxygen and air so it would ruin itself. Um, So the introduction of that resin, it gives the wine a really intense aromatic kind of balanced and refreshing but aromatic flavour. A lot of Greeks are very proud of it and um, they say it embodies the taste of Greek summer. It pairs very well with lots of different foods and it's essentially the wine of of Greece. Um, The Romans began to use barrels in the 3rd century AD um, which removed the need for using the resin. However, that flavour that's created by using the resin was so popular that the style is still used today. Um, despite them innovating, it became a part of the wine. People liked that. Um, 
So in Greece, uh, local retina is produced throughout the country. Lots of different areas do it. Um, and unsurprisingly, as we always find out in this podcast, uh, the European Union treats the name retina now as a protected de- designation of origin. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are lots of other countries that do produce similar wines. I think a quite famous one is um, an Australian wine, but they're not allowed to be labelled as retina wine. They just have to be a resonated wine. Um, so as I mentioned, it's a really old kind of traditional wine in Greece and I think a lot of the producers today were getting a little bit frustrated at the kind of the way in which it was viewed it was viewed it was starting to be viewed as just a kind of old-fashioned Greek wine it wasn't cool anymore um so there were there are lots of producers still um making it but they are they are trying to like not rebrand it but just kind of re-educate people on it um it sounds similar to the um Beaujolais wine problem. Uh, I think there were a lot of people creating it on the cheap and quickly and Mm. cutting corners and they weren't producing really good wine. So the producers now who do it well and take it seriously, they are consistently trying to demonstrate that if it's grown properly and vinified carefully, it can be a really, really beautiful wine. Um, And they're trying to transform it into a more complex wine, uh, a tradition of which uh, modern Greek people can be proud of as well. Um, and there's one guy, Mr. Stelios Keshris. Uh, he is the commercial director and owner of Keshris Wines in Thessaloniki. Um, he is very passionate about it. I read a lot about him. Um, he seems to be paving the way for it. And he said, I quote, um, It's a very difficult decision to invest in a wine as misunderstood as Retzina. However, it's a unique product with potential that still remains unexplored. Despite beliefs to the contrary, quality retina is a very difficult wine to make. It's also a wine that could become a trademark for Greek wineries. The modernization of winemaking has highlighted the quality of retina. Innovative winemaking techniques, the reduction of resin percentage to the fermentation, the creation of sparkling retina, similar to champagne with a second fermentation in the bottle, the labeling of the variety and the date on the bottle all add value to this beloved wine. So one, he's very passionate about it. And two, it sounds like they are really putting a lot of effort into it. And three, I just am intrigued. It sounds like a really delicious wine. I really want to try it. Um, They do sell it in the UK. Um, I didn't find it on my travels. Apparently Mm. it is sold in Sainsbury's. I did try very hard to find it, but didn't find it. But I think if you go to any good wine place, you'll be able to buy one white wine you know i actually do have a tree sap sparkling wine that's like a prosecco um hmm. on my shelf next to me but it's swedish Hmm. is it just uh, is it labeled as a resonated wine you know it's actually it's not got grapes at all Ah. it's completely it's completely made from the tree sap so it's very low in sugars it's mm-hmm. you know sort of considered a healthier alternative in some ways to uh, to a prosecco, for example. Mm. It's called Sav. If you want to look it up, S A V Sav. Sav. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm 
I'm sold on Retsina. It might be that I've researched it so much that I've just <laughs> kind of sold it to myself. Well, look, I that's the idea, it. isn't it? <laughs> you know, we educate ourselves on more context to the drinks we have so we can enjoy them more. That is the idea. <laughs> but I would, yeah, I'm with you. I would like to sample some. I think it's been a very long time since yeah. I've tried some. So they say that by adding the pine resin from woods mostly in southern Attica, the wine acquires exceptional characteristics such as botanical, mastic, rosemary flavours and aromas. Sounds mm. delish. Well, I've been making up for it by mm. alternately sipping my mastic liqueur and wine. So I've been trying to recreate that um, in my <laughs> mouth. <laughs> it's very pleasant. Very pleasant. Yes, yes, Tim. Very pleasant. Uh, there's no outro of So Our Glasses Have Run Dry because clearly they were still flowing. So all I'll say is that's the end of part one. See you in a couple of weeks for part two. Wherever I may roam, or land or sea or fall, you can always hear me 